You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm delighted again to host University of Wisconsin-Madison Chancellor, Dr. Rebecca Blank. Thank you so much, Chancellor, for joining us. My pleasure to be here. It's good to see you, Steve. We last visited on this podcast series with you in the fall of 2020 in the depths of the first year of the pandemic, and it was a very revealing conversation. Chancellor Blank has served since July 22nd, 2013, now in her ninth year, about to complete her tenure this spring at at commencement and transition over the summer to be president of Northwestern University. Congratulations on the next passage in your life. I'm looking forward to it. In the Obama administration, Chancellor Blank served as acting Secretary of Commerce, Deputy Secretary and Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs. I would like to start with the big picture here. I listened just recently to your February 10th State of the University address to the UW Regents, and you didn't pull any punches there. You made very clear that there's been substantial progress during your tenure, and uh, you go into great detail. We'll talk about some of those areas. But you made very clear your view that this university remains quite fragile, even though it's moved from a static or somewhat regressive status 10 years ago through solid progress, but big problems remain. You put great emphasis on political and financial deficits amid an increasingly competitive environment with peer flagship research universities. You appealed more, need more support from the legislature and citizens of the University is the state's flagship in recognition that it is an engine of growth. You call attention to the political polarization, acute partisanship, which in your in your language was extremely dangerous, and that the university finds itself caught in political battles. And you're saying we shouldn't take things for granted. We can't stop now. And you appeal to the regions to please engage with political leaders of both sides to provide more support to the university. That was a dramatic a dramatic moment, a dramatic address. I'd like to sort of reach beyond that and ask you, as you look at this, what is, do you think, the storyline of your tenure? You came in among, in financial straits, acute political tensions with the governor and legislature, then faced COVID-19, racial tensions compounded by George Floyd's death, Black Lives Matter, rise of gender issues and the like. How do you characterize your tenure? Being the uh, head of any major research university in the last nine, 10 years has not been an easy job, I think, for anyone. And none of the issues that have faced Wisconsin are particularly unique to Wisconsin. I would like to think that one of the main stories of my tenure has been very steady improvement in educational outcomes at this university. And um, I'm quite proud of what it is that we have accomplished. And that's definitely a we, because this is something that staff and faculty and students from across the university have been part of. We have um, raised our graduation rates. We're one of the top 10 um, public universities in six-year graduation rates. We've reduced our time to graduation. That means that student debt has dropped dramatically. Almost 60% of our students, our undergraduates, graduate with zero debt, which is almost twice the national average. We've reduced the graduation gap between white and historically disadvantaged students and increased diversity um, and increased access. One of the programs that I'm very 
proud of is something called Bucky's Tuition Promise. Bucky is our mascot for our athletic teams. And Bucky's Tuition Promise basically guarantees that any student in a low-income household in the state of Wisconsin who can be admitted to UW-Madison will come here for four years with zero tuition or fees. And that's been very important for the reduction in debt and I think for us expanding our outreach into both rural and urban areas of the state. So um, I hope that one of the main storylines of my tenure will be about some of those outcomes which continue to make Wisconsin a, a very hot school. Applications have doubled over the nine years that I've been here. And uh, you know there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them is certainly that we've become a more attractive and more competitive school educationally. Thank you so much. Uh, in full disclosure, I should have said this at the outset, I serve on the Advisory Council for the International Division at the University of Wisconsin. I completed my PhD there in 1988. Our daughter, Mehran Morrison, graduated there in the School of Business undergraduate 2018 and is now at Northwestern in the School of Business. So you'll be following her tracks there, Chancellor. And my wife, Marsha Lee, is a graduate of UW Landscape Architecture Program of 1976. So I, I should have said we have great alumni. So, yes, that's one important point, of course. But um, what is the, you've said some pretty strong, you've laid down some pretty strong claims for dramatic and deep progress. You've also been dramatic about the fragility. What, what is the advice to your successor? What are the top line pieces of advice to your successor? Be persevering, be stubborn, keep pushing on the things that matter. That's number one, which in this environment you just have to do. Number two, keep creating financial space for investments around the university. And I think one of the things that's changed most dramatically around these public universities is that much of the investment dollars are not coming from the states anymore. They're coming from the entrepreneurship and the outreach and the creativity of those of us inside the university to find ways to generate investment dollars. So, you know, that's not just alumni fundraising, though that's an important piece of it, but that is looking at class size looking at you know, what summer revenues are, looking at opportunities for online programming, looking at professional master's programs, you know, doing all sorts of things that basically say it's up to us to make sure we've got some of those investment funds available. You know, in talking to people in getting ready for this conversation, I think there's a pretty strong consensus that one of your greatest achievements has been bringing about financial stability and a different basis, a different financial foundation for the university. And much of that has involved being very aggressive in the campaign, the $3 billion plus campaign, in getting big donors to come forward, a diversity of them. And really, the I think you benefited also from the fact that Madison in this last decade has emerged as a growth center for the state, technologically, private sector, and looking for new partnerships with the university. And this is an area where the place looks much different than it did 10 years ago. And this is a culture change. And as you know, culture changes are slow, but you do have to be a little bit persistent and stubborn. And I really have tried to, you know, open this university up to thinking what I think of as more entrepreneurially, more creatively about what are our possibilities. And that is everything from really building together with our foundation, a first rate background for fundraising and development, which was not at this university when I came. It's you know about thinking of your opportunities, but it's also building stronger partnerships with industry, being more aggressive on the research front, 
you know, doing a whole variety of things that let us outreach into the community more. And your your comment that the Madison area itself has gone up very steadily over the nine years that I've been here, becoming much more of a center for venture capital, for entrepreneurship, for new businesses and startups, um, and to growing physically and, and demographically. We're in a good place, and we need to leverage that as a university, just as the community needs to leverage the university in its growth. Now, part of the financial health of the university rests not just on these new innovative finance streams and new partnerships that break the mold and change a different culture and a different outlook and change the reputation of the university within the private sector. It also is the compact with students and faculty where there had been erosion of salaries, there had been affordability issues, and you put enormous emphasis on rebuilding that confidence, getting departments with new resources, reversing salary erosion, being more competitive, but also offering incoming students adequate financial support and low, low debt levels, and really resetting the relationship with the students across Wisconsin and elsewhere in terms of those coming through the high school ranks. Say a few words about that. Why was it possible to get on a different setting in the financing of the departments and salaries, faculty salaries and recruitment, but also to strike a new, a new bargain with the students and their families in the state? This is the issue of um, figuring out how you generate your own investment dollars. And we've created incentives for the departments, for instance, to offer summer courses, to um, offer professional masters, to think about other ways in which you know, in addition to what we're doing at the center to raise money for departments themselves to also think about what they can do to expand their financial resources. And an awful lot of departments have understood that and grabbed onto it. And, um, you know, you can see across the university um, additional resources available in many, many areas. And, you know, this is not just the STEM areas and engineering, but, um, you know, it's it's a great um geospatial um, professional master's program that our geography department is running. It's our economics department running a great master's in economics for international students. You know, it's interesting things that our language programs are doing to bring people in over the summer. You know, all of that, you know, matters. And the result of that, together with what we generated at the center, is, you know, we have made a difference. I think we've gone from being on one of the lowest universities in the Big Ten in terms of the number of named um, professorships. And a named professorship is a coin of the realm to keep and attract really top senior faculty to being like number two or three in terms of those numbers that all came out of our campaign. We've, over the last 10 years plus, we've almost quadrupled the number of scholarship dollars that are available. We've moved our faculty from being at the bottom of the Big Ten, which is not where we should be, to being well above the median in terms of their salaries. We've done the same thing with our graduate student stipends. But, you know, that requires two things. It requires you have investment funds, and it secondly requires that you spend them in the right place. I do think this university has done a good job with both of those over the last nine years. Let me also add, you know, the, the really troubling part of this equation. The state accounts for 15% of your budget, and it's still a struggle. Uh, nine years into this, it's still a struggle to get Republicans in the legislature to support the university in a fulsome way. And it's not just a Republican problem, as you've outlined. This is a the partisanship has intensified. The polarization has hardened and the university gets caught in that. But there's also a skepticism, a deep skepticism 
about investing in flagship institutions. It's not just Wisconsin that faces this, but Wisconsin, as we know, is one of the more polarized states in the country, and people watch it very carefully in that regard. And I know you've tried many, many things to try and correct that and to reverse opinion and, and make progress, and you've made some progress. I know that Tommy Thompson, as system president, has played an important role. We've worked closely with him in the past years, and when he was secretary and post-secretary at HHS. Say a bit about what more, what would your advice to your successor be on this really tough, tough, tough area? So, um, you know, as you point out, this is just in the water. It's in the water everywhere. The increased partnership, the use of public institutions as a pawn in trying to, um, you know, throw red meat at your base and universities, you know, for a whole variety of reasons are sort of sitting there and being used in this way. And um, you see real divergences right now. This is really dangerous. It's not true in the past. In the last 10 years, you see real divergence when you ask people what their parties are and you ask what they think about universities. There's just a, a, a growing gap between the level of trust in universities, what you think is right and wrong about universities based on party affiliation. And, and you know, public institutions need bipartisan support. And that's particularly true of big public state universities. So, you know, that's a troubling trend. And, you know, my best advice for my um, successors, you just got to keep at this. We are part of a system of higher education in the state. As you note, former Governor Tommy Thompson has been our president for the last two years. He's been an absolute advocate for higher education. That's important. And that partnership between us and the system presidency is really important. All of that said, I was very disappointed this past year. In the budget allocation, we had one of the best financial years for the state that they've seen in 20, 25 years. And there was no new general funds given to any higher education within our system yeah. in, in the state. And, you know, that's a problem. Do you expect to see this issue of UW figure in the, for instance, in the Senate race, Senator Johnson's seat, or in the gubernatorial race coming up? You know, I hope not. You're always better when you aren't in the middle of partisan politics. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing, you know, it's, it, it's, very, it's very obvious that you made a big investment in your communications team that trying to connect to the public in a new and different way in this period, not just striking a somewhat populist appeal, right? Your program of Bucky's tuition promise, it's a populist appeal, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's embedded in the Wisconsin idea, but it also has a populist ring to it. I hope that's resonating among citizens of all persuasions, but you also amped up the communications power of the office. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, you know, I think I benefited from coming from Washington, D.C., where I'd been working with a really top communications team. And I think universities are a little late in the game in understanding the value of top communications teams. So we've done some really good hiring and some good promotions. And I have a great team here right now. And they've really worked to reach out into the state. And some of this is I've been traveling around the state over my nine years here. But they've also done some very creative things with social media. So, you know, we had a, um, you know, a, a little... 30-second ads that got pushed to people on their social media in some key urban areas of the state that, you know, answered the question of the myths about UW-Madison. My child can never get in. Well, there's a little 30-second talking about how many Wisconsin students and what percentage of our Wisconsin applicants got in. If my child gets in, she won't graduate. Well, you know, we had a little 30-second squib on our very high graduation rates. You know, if she graduates, she won't get a job. Well, we had a squib on that. Or if she gets a job, she'll leave the state. And I'll never see her again. 
Um, we had a little squib on that. And, you know, they've been very creative in trying to do that outreach. But um, you have to keep at it all the time. Before we move on the pandemic, I want to ask you a question about sports. First of all, very sorry about the outcome last night with Iowa State. I'm still I'm still nursing a, a, a very disappointed wife. So tell us how did sports change in the place occupied in the university in the last decade, in your view? So, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Wisconsin is that I think it deals in the right way with college athletics. Our students really are student athletes. They're in classes. They live with other students, you know, in the dorms. We've got coaches who care about the students and their athletic outcomes as much as they care about their academic and their mental well-being. And I've just deeply appreciated that whole culture here at the university. You know, that said, um, sports, you know, like many other parts about the university, have been under a lot of attack and a lot of change. And the implementation of name, image, and likeness, which I think is a good thing, also creates a whole set of challenges around education of 18 and 19 and 20 year olds of how to use that wisely, because we can't do that for them. This has to be something they do. You know, similarly, a number of the uh, shifts that are happening in conferences, um, some of the shifts in funding of, you know, through media contracts and other things, both creates opportunities, but also creates challenges and has led to a story about college athletics of it, you know, being really just like professional sports. And therefore, we should treat all our students as if they were professional athletes. We should pay them. We should allow them to unionize. And um, I admit that I am very resistant to the idea that my students are professional athletes. If they want to be professional athletes, they should go play on those teams. But while they are here, yes, they are playing, but they are also they are also our students and they're engaging in education. And for 97 to 98 percent of our students, their sports are a four year activity while they are here. Their educational degree is a 40-year career choice, and they need to be thinking about the education and the career as well as the sports, and we really try to make that happen. Thank you. Let's turn to how you led the university during the pandemic and how the university responded and the like. This was a profound period. It was hard to imagine preparing for such a thing, So, and the dramatic swings, the trauma associated with this the compressed time frames, the sudden twists and turns with the variants and the like, all of the changes in technology, practice, safety protocols, getting a community around a common agenda of masking, of vaccinating, of safety protocol compliances and the like. And I know it's been rocky, not just for UW, it's been rocky all across this country. We've talked to a number of, of universities. I'm very involved at the University of Virginia right now. These issues are, they never, they never get resolved in a particularly satisfactory way. So looking back, what are the top line lessons you would identify from this rather unprecedented and, and dangerous period? So, you know, I think we learned a number of operational lessons. And two years ago, between when we all closed down in March of 2020 and when we reopened and had some students back the next fall, we, we changed everything about the university. I mean, everyone was engaged in this. It wasn't just the educational people looking at moving online. It was our buildings and grounds people figuring out how you change the HVAC systems. You know, it was all supervisors figuring out how they work in a different way with people. All of our research labs had to be rethought. It was a really major effort. I've, I've never been quite as intensively involved in organizational change as I was over that time period. 
lessons from that? You know, the first and most long-lasting lesson, I do think, is going to be about um, being much more thoughtful about um, how we use both online versus in-person activities. And that's going to be true in the classroom. Where do we need to be in person? And I think in many cases, in-person classrooms continue to be the gold standard, but there are places where online education works well, where we go to work in person and have to be here in person and where we can do some things virtually. So, you know, my staff, like employees almost everywhere, are spending, many of them, some amount of time at home, even while they're also here part of the time as well. And, you know, the same thing goes for meetings and conferences and you know, it's opened up some ways of operation that, you know, are more flexible. And if we use them well, will make us a more effective and better organization. So I think that's the biggest long-term lesson. The second lesson is thinking much more strategically and consciously about our public health infrastructure on campus, right? You know, like everyone else, we have a university health service. They serve students. If you get a cold or the flu, you come in. If you, you know, we've got a mental health process and all of this variety of things we did, but, you know, sort of to the side, one of the many small things we did on campus, you know, in the last two years, our health service and, you know, their partnership with our School of Public Health and our School of Medicine has been just central to operating effectively. And I suspect we're all going to be much more conscious about our health infrastructures on campus, much more aware of what we need to have in place should something like this strike us again. And, you know, this pandemic is far from over yet. I think the whole health services side of universities becoming a more central part of leadership concern and operations is, uh, is another lesson out of this. How important was it to control your fate? And what I mean by that is controlling, having your own testing capacity, which you ultimately created. And also you, you started with a pretty good student health system, right? After 09, things had improved during the pandemic threat of 09 and 10. And there had been higher investment in mental health services and other things. So you were starting off not in a deep deficit, but with a pretty good capacity. Say a bit about kind of controlling your fate in this period. So, yeah, well, you know, I must say, I never felt like I was controlling my fate throughout this pandemic where things kept coming at us and the news kept changing. But, um, you know, it became clear to us and we have an advantage that not all schools have. We have a big public health program. We have a major medical school. We've got huge research labs, including um, state labs of hygiene and of veterinary medicine, um, which gave us facilities that not all campuses would have. So one of the things we started doing almost immediately was to try to set up our own testing capacity. And in that first fall of 2020, we were probably able to do somewhere between five and 7,000 tests a week. Well, that's not adequate when you have a student base of 48,000 and 22,000 employees. So by the next semester, by the beginning of winter, we were actually able to test everyone who was on campus once or twice a week, depending on who they were and how often they needed to test. And we were doing somewhere between 10 and 13,000 tests a week. And that was enough to test everyone. But it would have been far iffier. We would have had far less control over the situation, far less comfort that if indeed we saw spikes, we could do things that would bring them down if we hadn't had that testing capacity. So an example, that very first September, it was probably the worst week of, in my mind, of our leadership. We brought students back to campus. They're going to be here anyway. We were largely um, online, but we knew they were going to come to Madison after four weeks in their parents' basement. They weren't staying there another semester. So we decided we'd better have campus open, have some services available, you know, do what we can. 
And we had a big spike in one of the right. in two of our dorms. We had to close the dorms down, you know, and quarantine them for two weeks. And out of that, we learned how to prevent that from ever happening again, right? Which is that we then went in whenever we started seeing spikes in a dorm and we tested everyone in the next day or two and pulled people out and we went and did it again three days later. And we never again had a spike like that in the dorms. But we had, you know, this was a learning, nobody knew anything when we started this. It's a learning process. And we had to go through those, unfortunately, that quarantine of those two dorms to figure out what it is we needed to do. You know, and a lot of other universities were figuring out at the same time, and we were all learning from each other. But having our own testing capacity in that, the ability to ramp it up when we needed to was absolutely vital. You were operating without the ability to mandate vaccination. There was a political opposition to that. On the other hand, you created a very robust vaccination capacity and you created lots of incentives. And of course, those who weren't unvaccinated had to test in various ways. But beyond that, it seemed to me that the core goal was to create a sense of a larger effort and get a buy-in from students for a larger effort and win the trust and confidence and not be affected by the polarization that was worsening across the state over the course of 2020 and 2021 around all of these issues. And you did get to, I think, 95% testing levels. I mean, very high levels without the mandate, but you took a different strategy. It took a different pathway. Say a bit about that, because I think that's one of the deeper lessons of all of this. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of our students, our staff, everyone who got it was involved with this, our communications group. We did not have a vaccine mandate like most other schools. I'm sorry about that. I probably would have imposed that if I could have. But um, we still ended up with 96%, that's our current number, 96% of our students um, are vaccinated. And, you know, I give them enormous credit for that. Now, I will tell you, we made it slightly inconvenient to be unvaccinated. If you were unvaccinated, you had to test regularly. And we followed up on that and tracked students and, you know, sent them, you know, you know to all sorts of, um, you know, reminders and strongly worded comments about, on the fact they needed to be in and, and, and called them in some cases. But, you know, it does say that, you know, this is an interesting debate, right? Where are mandates more effective and where are incentives and the right form of communication and the right appeal to the community effective? And, you know, with our community, we found that the latter approach was as good as the mandate. We are actually, our vaccination rates are above a number of schools that have mandates. So we ended up in a good place. And that was a lesson that I think we would not necessarily have guessed um, ahead of time. Thank you and congratulations. Let's talk at the end here about race and gender. We know that these ec issues of equity and inclusion, they, they're vitally important for the community and the spirit of the community. They're vitally important for recruitment and retention, right? Of students, of faculty, of the next president of the system, the next chancellor. We know that on racial issues, I mean, I remember my daughter was was on campus so 15, 16. In, this was a period in which across this country, we were seeing a, a steady rise of racist language, racist incidents. It was causing a lot of tension. And it was coming at a little bit of a shock, I think, to many, many people trying to manage universities and colleges across the country. Of course, George Floyd's murder, followed by the acceleration of protests for racial justice that followed also put that front and center on campuses and the mobilization and new demands for change. 
Of course, in this same period, there was a, a profound changes in gender norms and expectations within the university and the like. Each of these called for big structural changes, but also norms and practices and protocols and the like. How did you go, approach these and what do you think is the evidence of the greatest progress made with respect to race and gender on the university? Yeah, so, you know, this is an issue we've been working on at Wisconsin since long before I came, and I'm sure we'll be working on long after I leave. We put enormous time into it in the nine years that I've been here and even more in the last several years, given what's been happening in the larger environment. I feel like some of our biggest successes have been around expanding diversity. And, you know, we're in a predominantly white state, predominantly you know, historically white institution. In this last freshman class, 25% of our incoming class were students of color. 15% of them were students from historically underrepresented groups. And in the state of Wisconsin, those are big numbers. Okay. Similarly, we've seen big increases in diversity among our newly hired faculty and we've put some real incentives out there to encourage departments to build pipelines, to do things that expand the diversity of their hiring and of their application pools. And I think that has shown real success as well. The bigger challenge is the culture, right? And I think this, you'd say, I, mean, I think anyone in any institution will change this, is how do you make us this a more diverse and a more inclusive and multicultural campus in the way that it deals with everyone who's here? And I'm not just talking about students of color, I'm talking about international students, I'm, you know, talking about the LGBT community, you know, all, all of these different groups. And, you know, we've made some progress on that. We're doing training of our students when they first come in and holding conversations with them that we weren't doing before. We're doing similarly, trying to encourage conversations and training among employees and the units where they live. You know, we've created all sorts of opportunities for education with um, conferences and speakers who come through. But culture is hard, and it only changes slowly over time. And there has to be a real willingness on the part of those involved to engage in those conversations, to engage in that education, to be part of that training, and to take it seriously. And, you know, I take hope from the fact that the last couple of years have greatly expanded the number of people who understand they do need to think about these issues more than they have recently. They do need to maybe read a couple of books they haven't read, go to something, engage in a training, start some conversations. And you see that across campus, but um, it's a slow process. We are still a predominantly white institution in a predominantly white state. And we just have to keep working on this one. You know, it's not something you're going to solve. It's a process, not an outcome that we're, we're aiming towards. In talking to some students of color, who've been on campus in the last decade. One thing that was important that surfaced in the conversation, which they felt was quite important, was simply hearing acknowledgement of the issues and the complexity and difficulty of the difficulty issues. I know that we're running out of time here and I wanna close and I wanna close by, I mean, just reminding everyone of the extraordinary period that you've been through and the university's been through and you've led the university through a period of extraordinary existential threats and challenges and landed the place at a much better place. And I just want to thank you for your service and your leadership to the University of Wisconsin and wish you the very best at Northwestern University. We're all in your debt. So thank you so much, Chancellor. Thank you, Steve. It's always good to talk to you. Coronavirus Crisis Update 
is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.